Hello and welcome to The Mission. This is the podcast to listen to if you're interested in mission-driven innovation. My name is Ravi Gurumurthy and I'm the Chief Executive of Nesta, the Innovation Foundation. And on this podcast, we're going to be talking to practitioners, academics and policymakers about how to tackle society's intractable challenges. Today, our mission is tackling the UK's stagnant productivity. And with me to discuss it is John Van Rienen, Professor of Economics at LSE. John, welcome. Hi, Ravi. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. Can we just start by setting the scene and defining productivity for us and say a little bit about why it matters? I often hear people say, well, how can you uh, define productivity in a service-based economy when you know we shouldn't measure progress in education by the number of kids in a classroom? We should be defining it based on other measures. So tell us a bit about how you define it and also why it matters. Sure. Well, just to say, I mean, I certainly agree that productivity isn't the only thing which matters. There's lots of other things. But at its basic level, productivity is trying to say, well, given all the uh, inputs, the effort you make to create some good or service, how much output do you get from all those inputs? So it's a kind of output relative to inputs. So you could think of this as a measure of efficiency, if you like. The practical way that people often do that, say, trying to look at the economy as a whole, would be to try and look at the size of the economy as measured by something like gross uh, domestic product or gross national product. That's the kind of size of our national income divided by the input. So the most important input is uh, people, labor inputs. So that the basic measure of labor productivity would be something like GDP per hour worked. So for all the hours worked, how much output comes out of that. Um, that would be a basic measure. And then more sophisticated measures would also try to take into account other things like how much capital is being used, how many buildings, you know, machines, robots, uh, and so on. And, you know, then uh, that's a more sophisticated measure of productivity, taking into account the non-human inputs as well as the human inputs. Economists sometimes call that the horrible term total factor productivity. But, you know, that's basically what it is. It's trying to kind of say, well, when you take into account all the inputs, how much how much output do you get? Of course, that's at the aggregate. And you, we could also talk about how you try to measure that at, say, the firm level or at the level of a school or a hospital or other kinds of things where the idea would be the same, but the implementation might be somewhat different. The reason why it matters is that if we think about that kind of, you know, macroeconomic countrywide definition of productivity, and in particular, the kind of growth of that thing over time. So, you know, one of the startling facts in, in the world, I'd say, is that for most of uh, human history, productivity growth, the growth of that efficiency has been, has been uh, zero or very, very small. But then around, you know, 250 years ago when the Industrial Revolution happened, we got a sudden increase of productivity. There was this kind of, sometimes people call this the hockey stick, you know, the flat part of the hockey stick if you're lying on its side is quite flat and then suddenly it took, took off. First of all, of course, in England at the end of the kind of 18th century or so, and then subsequently Industrial Revolution spread to the rest of the world. So we had this kind of real increase of productivity growth. And in Britain, for example, you know, productivity growth has uh, been going on at, say, about 2% a year for, you know, maybe a century or a century and a half. And the reason why that's important is that if you look at people's income, people's wages, then that tends over the long run to follow productivity growth. So, and it makes sense because, you know, in order to get higher wages, you need the economy to get be getting bigger. If you just increase wages without 
the economy getting bigger or that productivity getting bigger, sooner or later that's just going to lead to kind of higher inflation. So people's wage increases, their income increases, have to you know, follow or, or be in large part determined by kind of productivity increases. So, you know, the famous statement by, you know, I think it was um, Paul Krugman, who's a Nobel laureate, more famous now for his New York Times articles, <laughs> is that, you know, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. And you mentioned wage growth. Does productivity have any link to wage inequality and how that's widened? That's a great question. I mean, there's no consensus on that. I, th I say there is a consensus on, you know, wage growth and productivity growth tend to, over the long run, go together. Not, not perfectly, and we can discuss that, but certainly there's some correlation. In terms of wage inequality, there, you know, I don't think there's any strong empirical correlation one way or the other in the sense that you could have productivity growth, which is consistent with increasing inequality. And that certainly you know, happened, say, since 1980 in the, in the US and the UK and many other Anglo-Saxon countries. Or it can be consistent with decreasing inequality. That happened, say, if you look at the 25 years, quarter century after the end of the Second World War, you had healthy productivity growth, but you had um, stable or even decreasing inequality in, in many countries. And indeed, if you look across countries, some of the you know, very high productivity countries in the world, like Sweden or, or, or Norway or some Scandinavian countries, have relatively low levels of inequality. So I don't think there's any necessary connection between them. My personal view, if you wanted that, is that there's probably, you know, I, I guess an inverted U, a hump-shaped relationship in the sense that, you know, very, very low levels of inequality. So, for example, you know, think of the kind of communist Soviet Union type of system where you basically try and pay everybody the same amount of wages and get rid of inequality, at least wage inequality, you get inequalities in, in politics and other things. That tends to be bad for productivity growth because you take away incentives for people to innovate or invest. On the other side, if you let inequality get completely out of control, it gets too high then that's also bad for productivity growth because it means that, and hopefully we'll talk about this, many of the you know, very talented people who happen to be poor aren't able to use their talents in order to create new jobs, new firms, new innovations. So I'd say that you know, there's a kind of a sweet spot where inequality is not too high, not too low, which is probably the best, uh, best level for, for, for kind of uh, overall productivity growth. Now, you said in the UK, historically, we've grown at about 2%. Productivity growth has been about 2%. Since the financial crash, it's really stagnated at about 0.3%. And, and that means, you know, the average worker would be £5,000 better off if productivity had been at pre-crash levels. But this isn't just a UK phenomenon, is it? Basically, this is a story about lots of advanced countries being in the same boat. So how would you tease out the UK specific issues. And there are specific issues, particularly given our relative underperformance compared with the US and France and Germany. How would you tease out those UK specific factors from the, the more global uh, factors that have affected all countries? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. I don't, I don't think we know all the answers to that. But I think you're absolutely right to frame it, this slow productivity growth in the, the context of a global slowdown. And I think, you know, that's happened at different paces in different countries. But I think it's very important, you know, not to be too parochial. We're always beating ourselves up in the UK over this, but to see that this is part of a, you know, a more more general phenomena. Which is, I think it's worth talking about that, if you want to, why the yeah. why this more general thing. But I, I can talk about some of the UK specific things first, and I should also say that, you know, this is not a new problem. So we often call the UK productivity slowdown as the puzzle, but you know, the level of UK productivity already was lower than it was, say, in France and Germany and the US 
um, even before the global financial crisis. So it's not like this is uh, a new problem, um, but it's certainly got worse. So I think there's a there's a number of reasons we don't understand all these fully, but I'd say that you know one factor, and this is a more optimistic thing, is probably to do with measurement. So the question is, you know, are we you know, and I think you brought this up earlier, are we really measuring productivity correctly and are we measuring it worse than than we were before? And I think that, you know, there are very serious measurement problems. If you think about labor productivity, GDP is, is as we know, a hard thing to measure, and especially in a service-based economy where many things are free, many things are in the public sector, many things are to do with intangible capital. So it's very hard to actually measure GDP and get the, the kind of the correct measure of that. It's also, you know, even the labor input can often be difficult. So you want to measure it with hours and in, say, the gig economy, measuring accurately how many hours people are working, what people are working from home, like we are now in COVID, how exactly many hours are they working? So there is a challenge there. And, the, you know, of course, that's true for all countries. And it was true before the global financial crisis. But you might think there's some particular issues in the UK, as we are a very service-based economy. And there's evidence that the, uh, the level of intangible capital that we have in the UK is relatively high. So intangible capital, I mean things things which are not, you know, forms of investment which are not just, you know, machines and buildings and plants, but investments in design, investments in brands, investments in management, investments in R&D innovation. So, um, you know, Britain is a very big service economy. A lot of those things are service-based that could be a factor. So I think there is a measurement issue, but my, my gut instinct is that's only a you know small part of it because I think, number one, these measurement problems are true in every country and they were there before the financial crisis as well. And as you said, there's been a big fall of it. Um, so I think that probably plays some part, but you know that's only, only, only one part of the equation. The second part I'd say, which, you know, in terms of understanding the, you know, UK's, problem is that you know broadly what you could one of the things that stands out in the UK is that we you know we tend to um, have relatively low levels of investment so in terms of the kind of you know the, the kind of even the physical forms of capital that we often focus on our levels of investment are relatively low compared to um, the rest of the OECD so for example if you look at say between 1995 and 2018 gross fixed capital formation, something like 17% of GDP in the UK, compared to 21% in Germany and 22% in, in France and 24% in the OECD as a whole. So historically, and also since the financial crisis, we've tended to do less investments, because that's a very important part of, of growth. Just on that specifically, is that is that got some relevance to your previous answer about the fact that we're an economy that's service-based with a heavy dependence on intangibles? Because presumably it's harder to capture the benefits of that investment if there are big spillovers. So what's the sort of rationale for why we've got lower levels of investment compared to other countries? Well, there's several reasons. One, and this is a broad statement, I think, about my, you know, my view of how the UK tends to work. You know, we in Britain, we, you know, we, we, <laughs> we tend to be bad at the kind of long run investments. We, you know, we have a lot of focus on often, you know, short run efficiency things. But in terms of making more longer run investments, say, especially around investments in infrastructure, innovation, human capital, training, 
we often tend to be rather poor at those type of investments. And I think that one of the things that's very noticeable is in terms of, you know, think about public infrastructure where the public sector, you know, comes in very importantly. Um, you know, when we get into a crisis, that's often the very first thing that we tend to cut. So you saw when we moved very quickly towards austerity after the global financial crisis, a lot of the cutbacks and, you know, were in public investment initially. And those things actually are, you know, if you think about transportation, think about energy, um, those are actually very important, um, have very important long-run types of payoffs. I think part of the problem is that in, in the public sector, these kind of long-run investments, you know, got cut back very quickly. We've also had this historical problem making those investments. And part of that, I think, is due to, you know, we have a very adversarial political system compared to, say, you know, many continental European countries. So we tend to kind of, you know, switch around very quickly from one policy to another. Um, we don't have the same, some of the more consensual-based decision-making on, say, these long-run investments. You know, think about the time it's taken to make a decision over Heathrow's new runway, for example. So I think part of it is is the kind of public sector, but part of it is the private sector as well, because I think that, you know, there's been many studies looking at the kind of short-termism in some investment decisions in the private sector. And I think that although often it's, you know, the UK has, you know, very deep financial markets, another one of the reasons why we got hit perhaps more strongly by the global financial crisis because of the, uh, you know, reliance of our economy on finance. But I think there's a kind of deeper problem that, you know, we don't seem to be so good at making these kind of longer run kind of commitments to um, investment, even in, in the private sector, the kind of short-termist focus on the next set of quarterly results. If you're a public sector company, maybe the banks uh, are, and the other financial institutions are often focused too much on lending for, you know, for buying and selling houses or short-run M&A activity, rather than more long-run type of investments, which may have a longer payoff in the future. I think there's a kind of long, a short termist, short termism problem, which runs throughout the UK, um, both on the kind of public and, and the kind of private private side, which uh, you know I think needs some kind of policy policy response. And when I think about some of your own work on management, for instance, and how management practices are very divergent and perhaps are a big reason why the US does so well compared to other countries, but also a reason why the UK does less well. I'm just trying to connect that explanation with the argument you just made about investment because to me i'm just not necessarily convinced that management practices are the thing that is shaped by investment what's the connection between say these different factors well i mean management is extremely important so um that's been you know it's, it's kind of not <laughs> not big news for any business person but it, you know for economists the problem has always been in terms of understanding management as you know it's very hard to measure management and there's lots of case studies so as you, you know one of the things i've been involved with a lot over the last you know 15 years or so with you know my former students nick bloom in stanford and Raphael Sutton in harvard is trying to get better measures of management and one of the things that's come out of that is that across the world management is very important for understanding levels of productivity and say the uk compared to the us and maybe compared to germany does suffer from a management deficit and this helps explain some of the productivity gap between Britain and countries like the US and Germany. How big would you sort of, if you were going to try and put some sense of scale on this, you know, how big a difference does it make? Well, say compared to the US, I think we, count, you know, again, there's a lot of 
uncertainty of the exact numbers, but across the world as a whole, I, th I think these management practices account for about a third of the of these unexplained productivity differences, and for the UK, about forty to forty five percent. So a big a big chunk of that, I'd say, is related to to management. But but getting back to your question over, I mean, that's a levels comparison, and the the question is, can management help explain the change? Say in Britain, of productivity over time, or other countries over time, and that's a much that's a that's a much bigger you know that, that doesn't necessarily follow because it may you know management might explain why there's a gap, but not why that gap is getting bigger, which is the the, the kind of puzzle that you you, you challenge me with. Um, I should say we don't know this because it's again we don't have good measures of how these things have changed over time very accurately across different countries over this you know over the last 10 years or so but my gut instinct is it does have some role to play an investment in the following sense which is what you asked me so what are the things that we have learned when you have a blast of new technologies i think we're living in a period you know especially now i, I spent four years at mit i'm often in stanford working with, with my other colleagues who are there you know you walk around the corridors in MIT and there's kind of amazing innovations coming out everywhere, whether it's, you know, from driverless cars or new forms of gene therapy or artificial intelligence or robotics. So there's this explosion of innovation. And yet, as we just described, you don't see this in the productivity numbers. And I think there's, again, lots of reasons for it. But one of the reasons that we've learned from previous you know, big blasts of uh, new technologies, um, such as electricity in the 19th century or computers in, in the 1980s, is that there's often a long lag between these new innovations and how they get translated into productivity. And management is actually a critical part which kind of intermediates between these new innovations coming out and then how they get actually implemented on the ground level. Because you can have, you know, amazing technologies but if you can't adapt your organizations to make best use of them, then you can spend billions on lots of uh, fancy new systems without making much increase in productivity. Now, I spent a year working the National Health Service <laughs> in, the, in the 2000s when there was a, a, a massive push to use more information communication technology. And you know, I think the results were very disappointing. And I think part of the, one of the reasons for that is that there's a lot of problems with the, the, the degree of flexibility that different organizations have, the quality of management in those organizations to really make best use of that. You need to make a lot of changes. It's not just about plonking the new technology into your existing system. You often have to change the whole way you organize things. You have to take on new people with new skills, retrain other people who haven't got the skills. You have to often change the power structure in your organization. You know, often when you have a new technology, you have to actually give more decision-making power to people down the front line to deal with the new uncertainty this has created. And so I think that the fact that Britain has had this kind of management deficit may be one of the reasons why you know, we haven't been able to make as much use of some of these new technologies as, uh, as other countries have. Now that's speculation because mm -hmm. you know, we don't have the quality of evidence, especially with the technologies coming along in the last few years to, to corroborate that. But, in, in uh, when we looked at the impact of information technology, uh, you know, as I said, back in the kind of 80s and, and 90s, using UK data and data from other countries, we found exactly this type of thing. It, it did seem to be the US companies were much more effective at using information technology. And yeah, that was related to the kind of management practices. So, you know, for example, there was a productivity boom, in fact, in, in the US 
between 1995 and, and 2003, productivity growth more or less doubled. And a lot of that was related to the use and production of you know, new information technologies. And the companies um, which actually made best use of that were the ones which you know, actually had more flexible organizations and better management. So I do think that management is, 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 is important, but you know, we need a lot more you know, research on that to, to see whether it's a critical part of you know, Britain's productivity puzzle. And when you think about those uh, sort of fourth industrial revolution technologies that you, you started to mention, and the difficulty in getting those to penetrate through the economy quickly and how we accelerate that. Um, what role do you think there is for the state in speeding that up? Because in many of these areas, there are big regulatory barriers, there are probably big market failures. And I think of, say, climate change and energy, where I think the state or the European Union actually has played a big role in turbocharging the move towards more efficient vehicles or more renewable power. So to what extent do you think the state has a significant role in accelerating the adoption of those technologies oh it has an extremely important role so um, you know uh, the number of them you started mentioning some of them which i think is particularly important so you know uh, i mean there's lots of different dimensions of this so let's start with where you started so you know uh, you know climate change is is clearly you know the mission big challenge of our age so you know after covid um hopefully we get through this then clearly climate change is, is is what we have to deal with so that's a major you know um a major issue to deal with the market by itself is not going to deal with that because as we know this every country left to its own devices will free ride off the efforts of others so in order to deal with climate change you need to actually have state intervention you know in 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 many countries so uh, you know in order to do that you know we need to try to get the incentives right to get the diffusion of new technology um and there's lots of ways to do that you know i I think if we thought about climate change in general there's you know one part of it which is trying to you know discourage people using uh fossil fuels a very good way to push that is to think about things like you know carbon pricing and and taxes to increase and that will also have a, a positive effect on innovation as well so it'll encourage firms to develop new cleaner technologies because by reducing the demand for the old dirty technologies you increase the incentive that firms have to actually create new technology so the state can have an impact by you know pricing through carbon pricing but it can have a, also a direct impact by you know by setting standards by regulation by creating uh you know uh, a, a, a way of encouraging people to you know do more um, do more things, which is going to help reduce uh, reduce climate uh, carbon emission, therefore help climate change. So I think you know at both of those levels, and then of course there's a direct R and D subsidy type of thing that the state has to do in order to help generate those new things. So the carbon pricing will help, the regulation will help, but ultimately you also need to do a lot of kind of direct investments and direct encouragement of research and development to deal with those problems. So that's the kind of, there's, there's missions, climate change, health is another big mission, other environmental missions, defense-related missions. But then I think there's also a set of things uh, which are more, also more general type of uh, ways in which um, governments can encourage the you know, adoption of, of better technologies. And that's to do with um, thinking about how it kind of organizes markets in such a way that gives good incentives for the, the, the speeding up of the type of um, or, or different forms of, uh, of technologies or indeed management practices. So it, you know, by that I mean things like, for example, 
thinking about product market competition. So, you know, a lot of evidence suggests that if you have more competitive markets, that gives um, strong incentives to improve efficiency. Um, if you don't, you know, if you're in a very, if you're, in a, if you're in a kind of a very monopolistic market, then it's easy to uh, have the quiet life. Whereas if you face a lot of competition, unless you get more efficient, you're going to be pushed out of business. So competition gives good incentives to that. How does that relate to the kind of winner-takes-all digital world where it's, it's very, very easy for big monopolies to, to, to emerge? And, and again, sort of what is the right, do you think the state should be much more active or the European Union be more active in, in breaking those up? The principle is that you know, you know, competition is important to stimulate innovation, it's important to stimulate productivity growth, you know, both through giving the right incentives and also by weeding out some of the less efficient and less innovative firms. The question then is how you get more competition. What's the right way to get more competition? And, right. you know, there's a whole set of different tools governments can do. So you've immediately gone to everybody says it's competition policy, which is, is important, but that's only one tool in the toolbox. So there's other tools like being, you know, open to trade, being open to, you know, foreign, foreign investments. That's not going well for us. <laughs> no, that's not going well for us. We're, we're moving in the wrong direction. But on competition policy, the, the way to think about competition policy, especially in the digital era, but, but more generally, is, you know, what you, you want to do is you want to, I don't think you want to have just the view, well, big is necessarily bad. And therefore, you immediately, you know, anything gets big, you want to break it up because part of the incentive to innovate is to get to get bigger. So that's the first thing to the first point to bear in mind. Now, what you do want to do is you want to stop the firms who have got big or who are in dominant positions from abusing their power to maintain their positions of dominance. So, to me, the problem is not so much you have you know firms who have you know like who've got very successful if they're competing on the merits by producing better products or being more efficient. The problem is when they start then using their power to keep other firms out. And a classic example of this would be when Facebook uh, was allowed to buy up Instagram or WhatsApp. And, you know, the competition authorities generally said, well, well, you know, you know these are face at that time, you know, WhatsApp is a small platform, very small market share, similar for Instagram. The problem is, you know, these firms could have become uh, larger platforms in the future, which could have, you know, competed with Facebook. And even though they were small now, in the future, they could have become big. So, you know, you could think, you know, of course, one of the reasons that Facebook may have had, a, had an incentive to buy these companies up was not, you know, for just the reasons they said, which was to you know, get hold of their better technologies or their better people, but was also to take a future competitive threat out of the marketplace. So I think when we think about mergers, takeovers, we should be thinking a lot more about not the current, you know, market shares, but the kind of future potential competitors to those firms. And, you know, an even worse example, and this, you know, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, there are these examples of so-called killer acquisitions where big pharmaceutical firms might take over their promising biotech company. And then there's examples where that biotech company was going to come up with a new drug which would have competed against big, one of the big pharma's existing drugs. And so what, you know, what some of these big pharma companies do is take them over and then kill off their innovation. So they, 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 you, know, you take that, they, the, the drug actually no longer comes out to threaten 
all the profits they're making. And that's, you know, that's, e that's even worse because you're kind of killing off an innovation and you're killing off competition. So I think that in terms of competition policy, we really have to think about actions which are designed to reduce future competition. And, you know, I, you know ultimately, you know, ho you know, I think if the existing, you know, that, that, that's down in the existing competition rules. This is not really changing the philosophy of competition law, but it's changing the way it gets implemented. Too often in these things, the burden of proof is always on the government or the mm -hmm. regulator to say, well, can you prove without a shadow of doubt that this company that, say, one of the big tech companies is taking over will become a, a future competitor? Of course, you can never prove that without a shadow of doubt because we don't, we don't know the future for sure. Um, but I think the burden of proof has to be switched more towards the companies to say, well, you're taking over this firm, which you know looks like it's got a viable platform to compete against you. How can you demonstrate to us there's not a significant risk that you know this is going to be taking out a, a future competitor from the marketplace and i think that's part of the changes that we, we we have to make now ultimately if you think that you can't do that i mean the combination of better competition law better regulation um you still see these things happening doesn't seem to be happening then you, ha you have to go for the structural breakup solution but that's a very blunt tool because you know, it's very hard to unstitch many of these companies if they've been together for a long time. You may lose some of the efficiency. So that's kind of the last resort. But of course, it should be there if the companies don't change their behavior and the other mechanisms that we have under competition law can't be used effectively to, to kind of inject more competition. And by the way, I think this is not just a competition in the digital sphere. We focus a lot, you know, on the kind of, you know, the gaffers, you know, the Googles, Amazon, Facebooks, uh, and so on, uh, you know, of, of the big the big companies. But it's also true if you look at many other parts of the economy. So the old older tech kinds of the economy have also become a lot more concentrated over time. We we did I did a study with uh, David Alter from MIT where we showed that if you look in the U.S. since the early 1980s, um, just about you know on average every big industry you look at has become more concentrated. So that's a kind of signal that markets are becoming a lot more concentrated. Sometimes that might be fine if, if it's doing it for efficiency reasons, but many times that is going to raise competition concerns. So I think that there is a general sense in which we are as a world moving to a much more winner-takes-all kind of world. And these kind of issues of, of, of competition policy actually are going to be very widespread across a, a large number of sectors. Tech is really important, but it goes wider than just tech, I think. We're getting more onto solutions now. And I just want to almost put it to you, if you were you know, in government, you were Rishi Sunak right now, what would be the sort of top two or three things that you would actually do? And I wonder whether you actually recently published something about how to boost productivity in the US and you graded the level of evidence about different interventions and the confidence you have in different policies. Are they the same kind of things in the US that you do here or, or are they very different? Yeah, you're referring to this kind of Hamilton uh, policy paper that I did, looking at specifically your innovation policy. So I, I think there are there are some differences in the UK. Let let, let me go into your first question though. So if I was Ricky Sunet, now of course if I was, I you know I, you know I would be doing in some sense what he is doing. That the immediate crisis is how we deal with COVID, and of course you know we're in a very strange position for the economy where we have to deal with the pandemic. And in order to do that, you know, we're having to put lots of restrictions on the way that we live. And that is causing, you know, a big fall of economic activity to happen. So 
what's really important right now is that the, the measures we, we put in place to reduce economic activity through social distancing, through reducing the hospitality industry and everything else, that that fall of demand doesn't translate through to you know, mass increases of unemployment, which will then have a scarring effect you know, decades in the future, as we know has happened from previous recessions. You know, so that, that, I think, is the number one kind of priority. And, and of course, as, and as we come out, we should also not make the mistake, which we did of the global financial crisis, to move too quickly to austerity and trying to reduce the budget deficit by vast falls of um, public expansion, increases of taxation. So I think that, you know, it's very important that, you know, that we, we, we kind of manage that immediate crisis. But as we hopefully, as we will come out, there's a whole set of new challenges that we face. And the, the Hamilton policy thing, Hamilton Foundation thing I did is about thinking about the more optimistic thing as we come out, how we kind of kind of build for recovery. And I think there's lots of different elements to how we kind of can build for recovery. One of those is around innovation policy. So I, I do think that's where it connects with UK policy. I think, you know, we have uh, an opportunity to make a kind of reset to our kind of, you know, growth model or, or, or a model of innovation, which could be really helpful. So, uh, you know, in that, uh, you know, in terms of thinking around innovation and R&D policy, what we were talking about earlier in terms of thinking about how to get more green growth, how to have these type of missions uh, is really important, so that's going to include health type of you know missions as well. So I think that you know we could have a whole package of things around that. Now the UK is not really on, you know on the technological frontier in so many industries in the way that the US is. So I do think we have to be a bit more modest and think about the balance is a bit more towards diffusion of new technologies rather than necessarily innovating at the frontier in a large number of different technologies. The UK does have strengths in certain areas. So I think that part of what we have to think about in terms of our industrial policy is to think about the areas where we have some you know, potential comparative advantage in and then focus on those areas rather than trying to do everything across the board. So I do think there's a kind of you know, sense in which we can focus on certain, certain areas. But the, the messages from that paper were that um, R&D subsidies uh, can be very effective. So thinking about how you make innovation policy grants, where you put your R&D um, subsidies in can be important. You should think about what they are very carefully. I mean, the, one of the issues I, I have in the UK is if you try and understand, you know, why we give out innovation grants to some companies and not others, is not very transparent. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that we should think about trying to focus on our areas of strength, areas of growth and national need, like, you know, like climate change. But also we should think about where the spillovers are greatest. Where there's a big private return already, then it's not so obvious that, you know, the government needs to give out some money. Where there's an area where there's a lot of spillovers, lots of benefits to other firms and consumers, then firms may have less of an incentive to make the right kind of investments. So we should think about where those spillovers are. Of course, we'd like the spillovers to be, you know, captured, you know, by the UK, you know, UK uh, taxpayers and people, uh, and not just to flow everywhere to the world. It's great they flow everywhere to the world, but if if we're paying for this with our taxpayers' money, we want to think about the web of connections which can benefit kind of the UK 
in exactly these kind of spillovers um, more than if they're just you know, general type of spillovers. So that's the kind of criteria I would think I would think of using in the kind of some of the R and D space. The other thing I think is really important, and you know, I was surprised. This comes out of the research I've done with Harvard's Raj Chetty, which we call the kind of lost Einstein effect. Is that I've been really maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I, I was surprised in that study, which was on US data, but I think similar things that you know are, are true in the UK and other countries as well, is that how many you know potential innovators, entrepreneurs were not creating because there's you know barriers um to enable very talented kids who happen to be you know born to you know lower income families or to you know be minorities or to you know in, in the innovation space if you're a woman rather than a man there's a lot of barriers as you grow up to becoming an, an innovator and that those barriers are things through partly it's access to education but partly it's also being exposed to role models you know if everybody you see who's an inventor is uh, you know always a kind of you know white middle class male, then it kind of uh, gives you the idea that you might grow up to be an inventor or an entrepreneur becomes um, becomes much less. So there's a, I think there's a whole role for interventions which can try and tackle some of those barriers towards people becoming uh, inventors and entrepreneurs. And those are things which you know going back to an equality point might be to do with tackling some of the sources of inequality. It might be thinking of going to schools with inventor education. It may be obviously direct discriminatory barriers and who gets access to finance. There's a whole range of different measures. Those take a long time to come through the system. So I think that you know these are not necessarily things which are going to change innovation overnight. But over the long run, I think they could have an important effect on innovation and growth. And also, of course, they're good for you know addressing some of the problems of social mobility and and and, and inequality as well. So those type of policies are kind of good both on the kind of, I think, productivity side and also good on the, on the side of uh, equity and, and social justice. So I think that's another range of pol innovation policies which is important both in, in Britain and America. And you mentioned earlier on about perhaps focusing more on diffusion rather than innovation at the frontier. Um, just interested in, in your reflection on, um, you know, the, the interest that the government has in an ARPA equivalent. Do you think that's sensible but has a you know only a very long-term payoff and is, is risky or do you think it's just a little bit hubristic and we should just focus on on diffusion well i you know i, I i'm not we, we, as with many things it's never quite sure exactly what that will mean in practice so you know it, you know ARP or, ARP or these other kinds of uh i think you know successful institutional um aspects of federal R&D funding in the US are things to look at and learn from, for sure. So, And I think that the ambition to try and learn from those is, is a good thing. But exactly how you then translate that in practice is another question. So I, I do believe that you know, having something focused on missions, having something thinking about bottom-up innovation, so one of the successes of my understanding of ARPA is that although often there was a kind of a mission, say, to deal with energy issues like climate change or dealing with you know, defense-related issues and, and DARPA, there was a lot of um, autonomy given to the different programs for people to come up with their own ideas and pursue their own ideas. So the bottom-up type of innovation and autonomy in those institutions is really important. So I, I think that that's one of the lessons you know, should be taken in terms of 
um, thinking about supplying supplying support for innovation. So I, I do think there's lessons to be learned from it, but I, I do think that we shouldn't just think it's all about you know shiny shiny new laboratories and scientists. I think there's often a lot more mundane things about trying to get you know the the existing technologies adopted and spread out, better management practices adopted and spread out um, much more quickly than we do at the moment. I think the way to do that is twofold. So one is there's a set of structural policies. So openness to competition, openness to trade, openness to FDI, getting good skills, especially intermediate skills, which you know the UK is very bad at in terms of apprenticeships and so on. Thinking about governance of firms. So there's a whole set of things like that. But then there's a whole set of more direct kind of policies. And the government does all of these things. So there's a lot of, you know, support for business and advice for business. But the problem is that you know, those things are very rarely evaluated to see what works and what doesn't work. So I do think there is a role for providing information, better information to firms and helping firms adopt. But the exact way that that should be done needs a lot of experimentation to figure that out. So just having somebody in the number 10 policy unit getting up one morning and saying, oh, this would be a great idea to do it. Yeah, let's let's squaff a few hundred million against, against the wall to do that is not the right way to do public policy. The right way to do yeah. it is to say, well, we really, really don't know what the right thing to do is precisely. Let's try a lot of different things and evaluate them properly to figure out what's worth rolling out nationwide. Yeah, and as you say, compared to other parts of public policy, there's much less rigorous evaluation of those kind of business support policies um, and perhaps we ha haven't also made those interventions particularly behaviourally informed. And if you think about a lot of the barriers to managers or people taking up practices, they're often things like, um, you know, people having not enough bandwidth or being overly confident. And I think there's a lot of potential there to apply um, behavioural science to, to design those interventions. I, I, to I totally agree. I mean, you know, there is, you know... I think we felt we moved away from the idea of you know homo economists is like perfectly informed and perfectly rational. We know that that's not true, but what we don't know is you know exactly what are the behavioural biases, what are the pieces where there's a lack of information, and how can how can we as you know uh, you know as, as as different forms of policymakers or governments you know support that in the most effective manner. So I think there's a and I think Nest has been extremely good for this in terms of supporting work on doing experimentation and learning learning from those experiments. I mean, you also talked a bit about the um, the way R&D grants and uh, even credits are sort of uh, designed. Do you think there's, again, more need for evaluation experimentation there? I'm just also interested in whether the role of prizes, one of the things that Nesta does is challenge prizes. Do you think there is a value in those? And, and, and does the evidence actually support that? I think there is a value in, in um, kind of prizes. I mean, the nice thing about prizes, <laughs> several nice things. One thing is you, you, have to, you have to pay anything until somebody comes up with them. <laughs> so that's a, that's a very, uh, you know, in that sense, it's a very cost-effective form of, uh, of giving incentives. Um, and you can also just, you know, you can allow, you, know, you have to specify the way to do it. People can, uh, you know, can determine themselves the best way to come up with the, the particular solution. I do think it's potentially, a, you know, a good way to do it. It's not, not the, again, not the panacea, because for very expensive investments, you know, if you can't get access to finance, then it's going to be difficult to get the access to finance to, to meet the price. But I, I, but I do think that the great thing about prices is that they are very good for evaluating, because you can look at the applicants, look at the people who just won versus just lost, and that's a 
a nice way of trying to evaluate whether the prizes are, are successful or not. So I, I do think there is a there is a, a big role for evaluation there, and there is a you know for, there's a big um, opportunity for different kinds of forward commitments. Thank you very much, John. Um, I was going to ask you what's on the cutting room floor of your ideas that uh, you'd love to revive, but uh, we haven't got time unless you've got a very quick sort of uh, thing that we should be looking at. The cutting room floor. I mean, I think the big the big thing that I'm I don't know if I've cut it, but I'm certainly involved in thinking about it is 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 going back to this question about how the business landscape is evolving in in the UK and other countries and whether or not this thing that we're describing, like the growth of the winner takes all economy, the growth of superstar firms, to what extent is that a, is that a big problem? Um, is the fact that these large firms are pulling away from others slowing diffusion down? What can we do about that? What's the right form of interventions? That's the kind of thing which is, you know, it's not it's, it's, it's less on the cutting room floor, but still the cloth is being cut to understand what's <laughs> happening. John Van Rienen, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. 